Alright everybody, we're going to uh, get started with Sunday School. If you please find your seats. If you can't find your seats, feel free to sit on the floor. Man, I'm just knocking jokes out right, left after right. Good to see all of you this morning. Uh, Before we jump into Sunday school, let's go before God uh, and pray and seek his blessing. Lord, thank you that uh, you have written your word and that you have preserved it over thousands of years. Thank you, Lord, that we get to come before you and, and hear everything that you have said to your people before and that you're saying to us now. Lord, please guide us in the meditations of our heart and our thoughts this morning. May you help us to think rightly about you, about who you are, and about what you've done through the covenants. Thank you, Lord, for this opportunity, and please bless us. Open our hearts and minds to understand, uh, to seek to know you better, because we love you. All this we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, so um, we've been talking about covenant theology. So a couple, four weeks ago or something, we started talking about what covenants are. Um, and we made a couple of points there. What are, what are some of the common covenants that we encounter in our day-to-day life? Do you remember what we talked about um, four weeks ago when we talked about covenants? So are there any covenants that we deal with day-to-day? Marriage. Marriage. Yeah, marriage is a covenant. What else? Mortgage. Yeah, we talked about mortgages. You have, you're in a covenant with a bank. Any other uh, covenants that we deal with on a day-to-day basis? Are there any covenants you're born into? Depending on the geographical length, region that you were born? Citizenship. Citizenship, Right. You are born into a covenant with your, your country, in a sense, right? You have citizenship in exchange for, you know, not betraying your, co- your, your country. Yeah, there's, there's covenants that we deal with every day, right? These surround us, and we're in them, whether we realize it or not. We don't call them covenants anymore. We call them agreements, uh, uh, you know, binding legal documents, things like that. But the principles are, are very similar, Right? There's promises, there's um, things that both parties agree to do, and there are consequences for when either party fails to uphold their end of the bargain. Um, and there are rewards for upholding your end. Right? If you do the thing that you said you'll do, good things will happen. If you fail to do it, right, bad things will happen. So citizenship, right? You, you promise to pay your taxes, to um, faithfully stick to your country, to not be a treason, treasoner. Treasonous. To not be treasonous. Um, To not be a treasonous person, right? And the country promises to protect you, right? To provide you um, benefits like roads and utilities, all this stuff. Um, And then we started looking at the Bible. We started looking at the fact that covenants are not new. This is actually something that people have been doing for, for forever and something that God has done. And we talked about the covenant of redemption where before time even began, God made a covenant. And we reviewed this last week, saying that God made this covenant within himself, right? The three members of the Trinity made a covenant together. They covenanted together in order to save, to redeem the elect. So the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit all agreed, right, to save God's people, to save the elect. 
And the Father is the one who takes the responsibility of, he's the one who sends, he's the one who elects and ordains. And then the Son agrees, willingly, submits himself to the Father's will and says, I will accomplish your will. I will go into the world. I will accomplish the redemption. And I will earn salvation for God's people. And the Spirit promises to apply that salvation to God's people. He's the one who regenerates, who sanctifies, who adopts, who brings us into this relationship with God. So all three members of the Trinity right, are, have been, throughout all of history, working out the covenant of redemption. That this, is, this, is the back, this is the big picture. right? And we talked about last week how there are different ways of thinking about covenant theology, right? It's not only covenant theology. There's dispensationalists who see the Bible differently, who say, well, it's not covenants that structure Scripture, it's dispensations, meaning that God has worked in different ways throughout all of Scripture. In this dispensation, he works in this way. And in this dispensation, he works in this way. Basically, there are different plans, right? When Israel failed, when Israel lost the land, God made a new plan of salvation, This one included the Gentiles. Covenant theology says, no, God doesn't work in different ways. Everything that he does in history is to serve this purpose. That he has been planning this since before he created. And because God loves to do covenants, right? we come to the covenant of works. We looked at the fact that as soon as he made Adam and Eve, he put them into a covenant relationship with himself. Do you remember what the terms of that covenant relationship were? So when God created Adam and Eve, right, he said, what? Do this and live. Okay. But before he even said that, he said something in chapter 1 of Genesis. Mm-hmm. Yeah, be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth and subdue it. Right? right off the bat, the Lord is already giving them a covenantal obligation. Here's what you should do because you are made in my image. Right Now, Adam and Eve are in a covenantal relationship with God that they are made in his image and they are given this charge right, to, to carry his rule, his reign into the rest of the world, to go and subdue it, fill it, um, have dominion over it. And then the Lord specified, right, zoomed in this covenant into one specific scenario. Right, what was that scenario? G? Right. Yeah. Exactly. Yes, in chapter 2, right, the Lord said, um, he put Adam into the garden to work it and keep it. This is uh, verse 16 of chapter 2, if you're following. And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, You may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. So here's the terms. If you eat this tree, you die. And the implication is, if you don't eat this tree, you'll live. Right? From, just from the bare basic, what the Lord says here is, if you eat of it, you die. If you don't eat of it, you'll live. So what does that mean? Why, why does the Lord do this? Why does God put Adam into this situation? What's the goal? 
Okay, so Marge, what did you say? To test his obedience. Okay, yeah, to put Adam into this situation to test his faithfulness. And then, Matthew, what did you say? To glorify himself through the Son. Okay, to glorify himself through the Son. What do you mean by that? That um, he was putting Adam in a position where he had, as you said last week, he could succeed or fail, Mm -hmm. theoretically. Um, God's ultimate plan was for Adam to fail and for God to send Jesus to do that work that Adam could not do. Yeah. And so do it glorify himself. Yeah, right. The big picture that we already know about, because we talked about it, is that the Lord has a plan of, of salvation already in place. So he knows what's going to happen. He knows that Adam's going to fail. The goal is to serve this greater purpose of saving his elect, right? Which ultimately is what will bring him glory and honor and praise and, and to show us, teach us about himself. Um, are there any other, any other goals of this covenant? Maybe let's maybe let's back up a step. Was this a covenant of works or a covenant of grace? And what's the difference? Or was it both? What do you guys think? Sarah? It was a covenant of works because it depended on Okay. So what would make it a covenant of grace? That's a great way of putting it. Yeah. It's a covenant of works because it depends upon Adam's obedience. If it were a covenant of grace, it would not depend upon his obedience. It would be unconditional. Are there any other things that... Oh, Jonathan? So, who is taking the condition to do this? Where Adam mm-hmm. could fall. Yeah. And grace that is taken by the persons of the Trinity and God can't do. Mm-hmm. Who's, who's responsible? Brittany? Yeah, you talked before about, uh, I think in the covenant of works, to build off of what Sarah said, God promises blessing and Adam has to do his work in order to receive the blessing. Yeah. In the covenant of grace, God does these both sides. Right. Himself, which essentially creates an unconditional, will receive blessings no matter what. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Right. The Lord says, here's the blessing that you'll receive, provided that you do this. Um, a covenant of grace would be more like, here's the blessing that you'll receive, conditional upon God's obedience. Right? Conditional upon what the Lord will do, not upon what you will do. Um, are there any other, thing, any other things that separate a covenant of works from a covenant of grace? How are the how are the blessings in a covenant of grace provided? It's probably not the best way to ask it. Um, Dave, they're received by faith. They're received by faith. Yeah, without faith, you, you can't participate in the covenant of grace, and so you, you have to have faith in Jesus Christ in the work that He did to fulfill the covenant works. Yeah, yeah, that's a great point, right? Covenant of grace. There's still faith that has to happen in order to be brought into the covenant. Um, I'm trying to get at something that I, I don't quite have the right way to ask it, so I'll just tell you. Um, another big difference 
between a covenant of works and a covenant of grace is the fact that a covenant of works does not have a mediator. A covenant of grace does. That a, someone spilled the communion. Um, a, a covenant of grace, the blessings of the covenant are mediated to the recipients. There's a mediator. There's, there's someone in between who's standing in on behalf of the people receiving the blessings, right? In the covenant of grace, who's that mediator? Jesus Christ, right? He is, he is the mediator. James, I think it's James, or First John will say that, no, it is James, um, that there is one God and one mediator between God and man, the man Jesus Christ. Yeah. So it's really not correct to say that it's unconditional unless you add that it's unconditioned, no condition that we provide, that we meet. It's just who is going to provide the conditions and Christ is the, as the mediator is the one in whom we put our faith. He's the one that meets the conditions. So the unconditional is a little bit of a that that term can be needs to be clarified. I guess <laughs> that's that's a really good qualification. Um, and that was when I was doing my licensure exam in Southern California. They try to trap you with that question, right? Is the covenant of grace unconditional? And you have to say for us, <laughs> but. Not for Jesus. Right. Right. Yeah. Charlie, have you end up? Just um, could Adam be understood for himself to be the mediator since he is the federal head? We call Christ both. He is our mediator and he is our federal head, being the second Adam. So Adam representing all of humanity with his obedience, which all of humanity is dependent upon his obedience, would he be the mediator between God and his progeny, his his children, future generations? It's a good question. Um, My first instinct is, yeah, that seems right. I, I don't know if there's any qualifications to be made because Jesus mediates right in a in a redemptive aspect and Adam is not mediating a redemptive covenant it's just earning eternity perfection righteousness for everyone that comes after him mm-hmm. yeah and so it, mediating for posterity are we talking about the covenant of grace or the covenant of works yes <laughs> So, Charlie's question is, what role does Adam fill, right? Is Adam, in a sense, fulfilling a role of mediator to his descendants in the covenant of works? So, if you think about Jesus and his his role, right? When you talk about the covenant of grace, it's gracious for us, but it's not for Jesus. Because Jesus is, is fulfilling, through his own righteousness, the obligations of the covenant, um, and he's mediating the covenant to his people. Um, it's a good question. It's probably worth some thought, and I think I need to think about it a little bit. Because a mediator is, it, I mean, it strikes me how the Bible uses it. As a mediator is usually someone who's interceding on behalf of and not simply working on behalf of. Like, a mediator is often in a legal context, right? Um, 
I don't think Adam is interceding for his progeny, but he is representing them in a federal headship way. I don't know. It's worth thinking about. I think it's a good question. Maybe let me think about it and, and get back. If he did, if he is, he didn't do it right. <laughs> well, yeah. He, he failed. Yeah. I think the thing that we can say for certain is that he was a federal head. Um, which means Adam didn't have a mediator. Right? There's no one standing between Adam and God on, on Adam's behalf. It's just Adam representing himself and all of his descendants before the Lord through his acts of obedience. Um, that's important, and we'll get to why it's important. Um, but not everyone, even in reform circles, will say it like that. There are some in reform circles who will who will push back on the on the idea that this is a covenant of works. They don't want to call it a covenant of works because that makes it sound like that man can earn something from God, or they don't like that because they think of covenants only in terms of grace. Right? They don't think about covenants in terms of our obligation. It's always grace when it comes to us and God. So John Murray uh, was kind of one of the, the key figures in this discussion. And he... he okay, what's the word? Um, made up his own definition of what a covenant is and then applied it to all the covenants in Scripture and came to the conclusion that there is no covenant of works. Right? There is no covenant of works in creation. That's not true. There's, I don't know, he had some other word for what was happening here. Um, but he defined covenants as explicitly gracious. So the, the reason why I'm pushing to really be clear that this is a covenant of works um, is because there's a purpose to this covenant pushes us towards salvation and towards redemption, right? Because when we look at this, we're not looking at this simply through, you know, we're looking at this knowing what we already know about Jesus and about what's happened. And so we could come to a couple different conclusions, right? We could say, well, God, God had to come up with a plan B because Adam failed and fell, or this was part of the plan all along, Therefore, the Lord had a purpose of salvation even in the covenant of works, that this was meant to push us to understand who God is and his plan of redemption. Um, And I like that a lot better. I don't like saying that God had to come up with a plan B because God is perfect and omnipotent and he had planned this from the beginning. Um, Because the covenant of works, like we talked about, Earlier, right? The purpose that Matthew brought out was to to show us the glory of his salvation. And the reason is because first we had to learn about the horrors of sin. Before we can understand salvation, we have to understand sin. And that's what the covenant of works really teaches us about. Because it shows us the consequences for sin. Right, turn in uh, your Bibles to Genesis 3. This is a, a fascinating chapter. There's a lot that we could say about the fall 
and about the dynamics of what's going on and the relationship between Adam and Eve and how marriages are affected by the fall. All this really fascinating stuff. But I think what we'll focus on is simply the what happens to people forever because of the fall. Um, if you remember what God said is, if you eat of the tree... The day you eat it, you shall surely die. And now he tells us what that looks like. So Genesis 3.16. To the woman, God said, I will surely multiply your pain and childbearing. In pain you shall bring forth children. And your desire shall be contrary to your husband, but he will rule over you. And to Adam he said, Because you have listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten of the tree of which I commanded you, you shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you, and you shall eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread, till you return to the ground. For out of it you are taken, for you are dust, and to dust you shall return. So what do these these verses teach us about what death looks like? Because... God didn't kill Adam and Eve right away, which is maybe what we would have expected, but something else happens. So what does this teach us about what the curse of the fall is? Yeah, life became hard. The, the addition of burden in this life, because obviously with works, Adam would have had to do things, building, there is labor involved there, but it's not, there's not the extra component of suffering and mm-hmm. on top of it. Yeah, work existed, right? Because God commanded Adam, work the garden and keep it. So it's not that work is now introduced as this new thing. It's that Adam was already working, but it wasn't like this. That it wasn't painful and difficult and burdensome and exhausting and horrible. Right? That's a consequence of the fall. Why? Oh, sorry, Elaine. No. Oh, sorry, Brittany. I was just noting that the word pain is repeated. It's mm-hmm. like there's discord. Not complimentary anywhere. Yeah. Good and perfect and working together in some cosmic dance. Yeah. Yeah. Now there's pain. Now it hurts. And notice how both of these are expressions of the command to be fruitful and multiply and subdue and have dominion, right? It's, it's not that that command goes away. It's now that command will be painful. Right? How can you be fruitful and multiply now? You can still be fruitful and multiply, but now it hurts a lot. And it's difficult to haul through the pregnancy. Right? Morning sickness and aches and pains and exhaustion and all the things that come along with pregnancy. I know because my wife is pregnant. Um, and... I'm like, yeah, I feel you. I'm, I feel terrible all the time too. Like, I'm just, just as hard for me. Um, and then she punches me. Um, and then for a guy, right, to be fruitful and working and subduing and having dominion, 
where you're farming and tilling the land and, and you know all these things, now that's hard. Right now, that's difficult. Jobs now are, are hard to do, and backbreaking labor exists. And even just the easy things of sitting on a on a computer, right, and putting numbers into a spreadsheet all day, is exhausting and hard. Like that's a product of the fall. That we're still called to go and do these things. Right? Everybody is, but now because of sin, these things are painful. What else does this teach us about death? you return to the ground for you are dust and to dust you shall return so physical death is included in the curse it's just not right away right when Adam and Eve eat the tree if, if they had not eaten right they would have lived forever but because they did now death is introduced physical death which tells us that physical death is is not right it's a product of sin and the fall and it's an abnormality it's not what we are made for but yet it's a reality of life in this world and probably one of the hardest ones and i think that's why jesus weeps right when lazarus dies because he lost his friend, but also because it's he's weeping for the the brokenness of this world, of the fact that death now is is a part of every day. Right? We've all probably known someone who's who's died. Um, that was not right. What was supposed to happen? But it's not just this physical death. Right? There's there's a deeper death that has also happened. And, we learn about that in Romans. So turn to Romans with me. completely forgotten. Brett, where is it where he talks about... Thank you. It's nice to have another pastor here. Oh, that's that's one of them, yes. Um, federal headship. Okay. Yep, thank you. So, Romans 5.12... Where Paul says, therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man, and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all sinned. For sin indeed was in the world before the law was given, but sin is not counted where there is no law. Yet death reigned from Adam to Moses, even over those whose sinning was not like the transgression of Adam, who is a type of the one who is to come. And then jump forward to uh, verse 18. Therefore, as one trespass led to condemnation for all men, so one act of righteousness leads to justification and life for all men. For by the one man's disobedience, the many were made sinners, so by one man's obedience, the many will be made righteous. So this teaches us something about death, right? That the consequences for the fall were physical death, 
But there's actually something much, much worse than that. And that's what Paul is talking about in verse 18 explicitly. As one trespass led to condemnation for all men. And that's something we already looked at, Romans 1. For the wrath of God has been revealed. Spiritual death, the, the fall introduced wrath and condemnation. So now all of Adam's descendants, because through his sin, right, the many were made sinners, now there is condemnation. What is what is condemnation? Judgment. Judgment. Okay, but is it like where, you know, if if Finn messes up, you give him a good spank and then you pat him on the butt and send him on his way? It's like that? No. What's it like? Eternal sense. I think that's key. Isn't it the sentence to, I mean, you know, in a, in a court of law, when someone has committed a crime and they go, they're, they're judged, but then they receive a sentence, uh, which which we do in sin as well. We're, we're condemned to die. Yeah. Briefly think about it like a, think about that situation, that scenario between Adam and Eve, yeah, they've just fallen, and now God is talking to them. Imagine if that were a courtroom, right? And God is the judge adjudicating the case. What he's doing is he's saying, Adam and Eve, you've been found guilty. And here's your sentence that you deserve. And he lists off these things, pointing to the fact that the sentence was physical death and eternal death. That because of what you have just done, you now deserve eternal condemnation and death and wrath. That's what you deserve, and that's your sentence. Right? There's no... And that, that court has been closed, right? That case is closed. The judgment has been issued. We can't make an appeal and go back in time and change it. Nor can we now say, well, I'm going to be such a good prisoner that, you know, I'm going to be such a perfect prisoner that the the judgment will go away. That the judge will say, well, actually, you did so good that we're going to, you know, release you and and change your sentence because you've been perfect. But the case is already closed. It's already been decided. Which means, is there any hope? From our perspective, can we do anything to change that? No. There's nothing that we can do. Not a single thing. Even if from the moment you were conceived to the moment you die, you were perfect and kept law, God's law perfectly, it would not change the sentence because it's already been passed. It's already been decided. That's what the covenant of works teaches us. Which is a pretty bleak picture, right? Here's what you deserve. Here's where every human being is. They're under the wrath of God. They're bound to be, to die, to return to the dust, and to be eternally condemned. But even in the fact, even in that courtroom scene, right, back in Genesis 3, turn back to Genesis 3. 
even in this courtroom scene, God still plants a seed of hope. And we heard it in Romans, too. So, uh, Genesis three fifteen. I guess we'll start in 14. And the Lord God said to the serpent, Because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock and above all beasts of the field. On your belly you shall go, and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head. And you shall bruise his heel. Right, even in the middle of this courtroom scene, there's this little seed of hope that even though there's now going to be pain in childbirth, through childbirth will come someone who will bruise or crush the head of the serpent. Right, someone who will destroy the serpent, the deceiver. That there's hope now. That there's some, actually, that little seed, that even in the middle of, of this condemnation of this curse, that God is doing something else. That God has a bigger plan. Um, and I think that's also what the Covenant of Works teaches us, is that here's where all of humanity is, right? Under condemnation, because Adam failed, and yet, there's hope. That this is where the Lord inaugurates a different covenant. A covenant where someone on behalf of the woman, right, on behalf of mankind, will crush the serpent. And obviously we all know who that is. Right, this is the foundation of the covenant of grace. That as Adam falls, God puts into place his plan that he's had from the beginning. That this is where it starts. Um, yeah, I think it's probably a good stopping point for today. We've covered a lot about the covenant works. Um, are there any questions or or comments before we start to move on from it and start to talk about the other other covenants in the Bible? This is your chance. We'll never talk about the covenant works ever again. All right, well, I'll just assume... Oh, sorry, Brittany. <laughs> well, was, you had a question at the bottom. I thought it was interesting to hear the answer. So are there any other covenants of work in the Bible? Oh, yeah, that, that is a good question. Um, are there any other... No, we can do that. We have a couple of minutes. Yeah, are there any other covenant of works in the Bible? Or is this the only one? Are there any other covenants of works in the Bible? Depends on who you ask, but yeah. <laughs> I'm asking you. Uh, no. Okay. Brittany? Would, would any of the other covenants, like in the time of Israel and stuff, where, um, where people or the nation received the curses... There was often blessings, promised, and curses. But when they received the curses, would that point to them, to a covenant of works, but in which they failed? I'm not sure what you're talking about. Well, like, sorry, I'm kind of thinking of it on the spot, but say, during, I don't know, but during the time of anybody, 
before the kings, the time of Joshua and then the judges, where they're supposed to go in and conquer and slaughter all the people, mm-hmm. and they will receive blessings, land flowing with milk and honey, and if they don't, then forget what the curse is, but essentially what they receive is they don't do it, and so then they're that's yeah that there is a covenantal there's a covenantal context there especially with joshua the land all those things um but the covenant it's not one specific right in that instance it's it's part of the broader covenant of of sinai right and that even still is then there's the covenant of abraham right where the land promise originated um Probably take us a long time to talk about all of that, but I think you're you're definitely onto something, um, Charlie. You've had your hand up for a while. Sorry. Um, so there, there, I think we, some of us might be familiar with the discussion of the Mosaic Covenant. Some people think it is a covenant of works. Some think it's a mixed covenant. Some think it's like the former covenant. Um, but actually, in Romans five, the passage that you were reading, it tells us why why did God give the Mosaic Covenant? Why did He give the law? And in 20 it says, now the law came in to increase the trespass, that is the, the former trespass, to reveal Israel's weakness. So if we keep the consistent definition of what a covenant of works is that we've been working with about uh, meriting salvation, that is something that is totally impossible to follow in Israel. So, so no, there, there's not a second covenant of works. All the future covenants are somehow revelation or appendices of the uh, of the covenant of grace given in Genesis 3. Okay. Um, yeah, I think those are good thoughts. I think when we get to the Mosaic Covenant, we'll we'll unpack all of that because we have like two minutes and I, this is a huge discussion. Um, are you? How so? I just don't know why. Why would it all be covenants of grace? You know, why did we start with that? With the covenant of works? Yeah. Why would that contradict his character? It, it just seemed like I guess there's still an element of grace with him coming back, like and. Providing for us, even after that fall with the covenant of works, I just was wondering if so, why would we start with the covenant of works then? Well, for for the reasons that we just discussed, right? There's a purpose to show us sin. The consequences of sin are helplessness and the cost of eternal life. Right, Adam. Adam was presented with, here's here's what you must do to earn eternal life, and and it was within God had given him all the tools necessary to achieve eternal life, right? To obey, um, and he didn't. He had everything that he that he needed, but he failed. So the cost still remains, right? Like eternal life, in order to be achieved, has to have that that obedience. That there has to be someone who's going to fulfill it in order for it to be earned. Um, Adam couldn't. 
We need someone to do that. God started off with a covenant of works because he, he wanted to, to show us right, our need for a redeemer after Adam fell, our need for salvation. Um, but it doesn't contradict his, his character. Like God is gracious, but he's also just. Right? They don't contradict each other. If he's being just in one situation, that doesn't mean that he's not gracious. Or if he's being gracious, that doesn't mean he's not just. Um, and Adam hadn't done anything to deserve condemnation. Right? So God didn't... He, he was simply giving him the... What's the word? He was not being unjust in saying, do this and live, or don't do this and die. That's not unjust of God. Does that make sense? There's a confusion that God is always gracious, therefore he can't make a covenant of works. about this. Did Adam need grace? Did Adam need grace before the fall? No. He hadn't done anything to deserve condemnation, and grace is God not treating you as your sins deserve. Right? It's, it's mercy and grace instead of what you do deserve, condemnation. Adam hadn't done anything to deserve condemnation. He was not sinful. He was not rebellious. Um, therefore, he didn't need grace. And I think you're right. If Adam had kept the covenant on his own terms, by his own merit, we would not understand grace. There would have been no need for it. Because Adam had fulfilled the covenant. He had obeyed. He had done it on his own merit. And he had earned eternal life. There's no grace required. We would not have understood that about God. Because grace, we only start to see God's grace when we see him not treating people like they deserve. Which is, ex- which is what God does immediately after the fall. Right? In saying, I will give you an offspring who will crush the serpent. That's grace. Does that make sense? Okay. G, do you have something to add? Well, I'm just wondering, how did the dispensationalists explain the statement of, I will give an offspring to will crush if they say that God um, changed his mind and changed plans? As far as I understand it, it's plan B. Plan A was Adam should have obeyed, I think, if I understand it. Um, plan B is, okay, you failed. Now I'm going to do it a different way, I think. I, I haven't read a lot of dispensationals. Um, I can look into it, though, and, and try to come back with a better answer. Um, these are really good questions. Um, 
one final comment really quick because we're very far out of time. Are there any other covenants of works in the Bible? Um, Yes. And we literally reviewed it today and we talked about it like a few weeks ago. The covenant of redemption is a covenant of works because Jesus is the one earning the reward without a mediator. No grace. Only his obedience and his works. That's, that's the other covenant of, of works in the Bible. Um, that Jesus actually was under a covenant of works when he came, became incarnated, lived a perfect life, died on the cross, and was raised again. Um, and we can debate about the Mosaic Covenant another time. But we're, uh, we're out of time. Thank you all for your questions and for your engagement. Really good questions. I appreciate it all and all of your comments. Um, Let's pray, and then we'll have a little time of fellowship, and then we'll worship. Father, thank you so much for who you are. You are both just and gracious, and we thank you that you teach us about everything, that you show us every side of yourself, both in the terrible wrath that we deserve, but also in your grace that you don't give it to us, but that you sent your Son. Thank you, Lord, that he is our mediator who earned for us salvation from what we have earned for ourselves. We thank you, God. May you bless our time today as we worship you and as we come before you. Uh, Bless our fellowship this morning. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.